Today we're going to be talking about uh, imperialism, American imperialism, as opposed to European imperialism. And it's different, because, you know, America and Americans are always known for doing things their own way. We measure distances in miles, Europeans use kilometers, we use feet, Europeans use meters, we use alternating current, they use direct current, as the roaming gnome finds out. Uh, 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 Americans uh, are confused and, uh, 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 and, uh, and fail to share the world's obsession with soccer. Uh, uh, Europeans are, are, are confused by American football, which we are uh, obsessed with, which they call football, of course, or their own game football. So you get the idea. Americans do things their own way. We make our own rules. Uh, we don't consider ourselves bound or boxed in by the rules and mores of other uh, nations, especially European nations. So it's not surprising that the United States at the end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century uh, developed its own approach to acquisition of interests in less developed countries, to what we call imperialism. Now, America always insisted that it was different from Europe. We were democratic. We were egalitarian. We were peaceful. And especially, we were devoted to the principles of self-determination. The idea that all people had the right to decide on their own how they would be governed. This was and is the official American position regarding relationships with foreign countries, especially developing third world countries. And obviously, uh, the official policy that the United States takes on the war in Iraq uh, uh, is that Iraq should have self-determination. Now, America took and takes great pains to distinguish itself from other nations, and especially European nations, that took colonies by force, by military might. That, Americans always claimed, was not the American way. America, unlike most of Europe, and this is especially the case in the late 1890s and early 1900s, professed to be a nation founded on democratic principles and thus not inclined, as Europe was, to push weaker nations around. Americans, or so they said, wanted only what was best for those developing nations and not to impose their will on them. Now, all of this sounds wonderful, of course, but reality has a way of intruding even on the best laid plans of the most well-meaning people. And beginning in 1898 with the Spanish-American War, America began to resemble many of the European nations that it criticized as it scrambled to influence and often to dominate nations in the Caribbean, in Latin America, and Asia. But typical of America, America accomplished this it engaged in this imperialism in its own unique style and own unique way. Sometimes with outright military force, but more often with that unique American weapon, the dollar. Imperialism, American style, was largely driven by economics, by markets, exports, bank loans and trade agreements, much more than by European-style military conquest. And American imperialism was also much more attuned, at least, to the outward trappings 
of self-government for their colonies than were the European powers, which unapologetically dominated the political systems of the countries that they controlled, their colonies, running them openly as colonies. But for the United States, this may have been a distinction without a difference, because American-style imperialism dominated these countries just as thoroughly as it would have if it had just taken over their governments and run them themselves, as the Europeans did. American imperialists understood that if you controlled a country's economy, you didn't need to run its political system directly. That if, so to speak, the economy was the head and the political system was the body, where the head went, the body would follow. With the added advantage for Americans of not having to spend expensive military resources in order to maintain control of these colonies. So, American-style imperialism, unlike European-style imperialism, usually attempted an economic takeover before resorting to military means and to indirect means of influence in these colonies before direct ones. In any case, by the end of the 20th century, Americans were ready to end almost a century of relative isolation from the affairs of the world and have the United States take its place as a global power commensurate with its position as the world's leading industrial nation, which I talked about uh, in previous lectures. And America's effort to do this, to take its place on the world stage, would, over the course of the 20th century, bring about enormous change involving the nation in four major wars, numerous smaller wars, not to mention a Cold War, as well as propel the United States into a role as world leader and policeman that now appears to be a permanent one, whether Americans or others like it or not. And which also would affect American economics, culture, race relations, and domestic politics in a fundamental and enduring way. America's decision to become an imperialist power, then, was a momentous one and would have far-reaching consequences that affect us to this day. And it's thus worthwhile, I think, to examine the origins of and the reasons for this major change in American policy, this change towards imperialism. So, why did America turn towards imperialism when it did in the late 1890s? Well, as always, if you study history, there are a number of reasons. First, uh, as I said in, in, in an earlier lecture, uh, American industry was expanding exponentially in the 1890s. And of course, when you have products to sell, you need markets to sell them. Now, you can, of course, develop an internal market, and America did. The development of railroads, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was crucial to this development. But eventually, you have to look overseas. And beginning in the latter part of the 19th century, this is what the United States did. It needed to export manufactured goods to overseas nations that needed them and wanted to buy them. Steel-based products, especially. And, of course, by the early part of the 20th century, automobiles. America also needed and wanted to export raw materials that some developing nations could not grow themselves. And that's why 
American cotton exports, for example, uh, doubled between 1875 and 1915, and wheat exports quadrupled. And finally, America needed to import certain raw materials from developing nations. And all this made finding overseas markets to trade with imperative for the United States by the 1890s. Its industrial system had reached a point where it was not internally self-sufficient and had to expand to survive. And so overseas expansion, meaning imperialism, was the logical way to go. A second reason for America's turn towards imperialism in the 1890s is that Americans were ready for reasons almost unrelated to economics to have America expand overseas. By the 1890s, America had reached a mature state of development, uh, not just economically, which I talked about, but also politically and militarily. The American frontier was at an end. It was closed off. It was settled. And new frontiers overseas were the next logical step. And for many American nationalists, and what do I mean when I say someone is a nationalist? An American nationalist. What does that mean? It's a nationalist. Well, think of the word nation, 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 nation. A nationalist. Yeah, it's to do with somebody uh, with a citizen being like very patriotic and you know all for my country and wearing American flags. Right. In other words, someone who is a nationalist is a, is a patriot, maybe even a super patriot. Someone who believes in the destiny of his country uh, to expand and be successful uh, and uh, uh, be prosperous and sometimes con- you know, conquer other territory. The American nationalists of the early part of the 19th century uh, uh, believed in an idea called manifest destiny. Has anybody ever heard of manifest destiny? Okay, what is what is manifest destiny? Somebody, somebody back there. Right. In other words, in the early part of the 19th century, and this was across party lines, you know, Whigs, Whig Party, and Democrats both agreed that it was America's destiny to expand from sea to shining sea. You know, you start out with the 13 colonies on the, uh, on the Atlantic coast all the way to, to the Pacific. That was America's manifest destiny to, to go all, you know, to, to go all that, uh, all that way. It explains a lot of things. It explains the Mexican War of the 1846 to 48, among other things. Uh, uh, that was the nationalism of the early part of the 19th century. Now at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, you have American nationalists who are saying it's America's manifest destiny now to expand overseas. And that's where we get, with, you know, we get into imperialism. So uh, for many American nationalists, including Theodore Roosevelt, who may have been the most nationalistic of them all, it was now time for the United States to take its rightful place among the world powers alongside Great Britain and Germany and France and Russia and Japan. In other words, we were outproducing these countries. We're the greatest industrial power in the world. Well, 
Why can't we take our place among these countries militarily uh, and politically as well? And the way to flex your muscles, so to speak, if you're the United States, uh, was through imperialism, either acquiring or dominating developing nations and creating colonies, either directly or indirectly. Theodore Roosevelt and other imperialists, like uh, a man by the name of Alfred, Alfred Thayer Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, who was the great advocate of sea power, naval power, as a route to world domination. See what England did uh, uh, through their naval power uh, throughout history. Small country. Uh, by the 1890s, they're dominating you know, much of the world through naval power. Roosevelt and Mahan sees this. Uh, they envision the United States as controlling what were known as spheres of influence, Areas in which American political and economic uh, power uh, was unquestioned by other nations, our turf, so to speak. Now, thanks to the Monroe Doctrine, which was the 1823 pronouncement by the Monroe administration that European powers were supposed to keep out of the Western Hemisphere, that area was effectively an American sphere of influence. But the American imperialists envisioned more spheres of influence, in Asia especially, and even stronger ones where they already existed. If the advocates of manifest destiny in the United States in the 19th century envisioned a nation that stretched from coast to coast, from ocean to ocean, American imperialists, as they looked towards the 20th century, believed it was America's destiny to take its place on the world stage through overseas expansion, and some even looked beyond this destiny to a role of world leadership. And the third and final explanation for the growth of imperialist sentiment in the United States, in America, uh, you know, in the United States during the, uh, 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 the 1890s, uh, oh, and I should stop for a second. I'm, I'm using the word America and the term United States interchangeably here. That is somewhat uh, of, a, of a question. In other words, uh, when I say America, uh, those who live in Latin America might say, well, we're Americans too. Those who live in Central America might say, we're Americans too. And of course, they are, you know, they are correct. Canadians may say, we live in North America, uh, so we are Americans also. Uh, and I acknowledge all of that. But uh, uh, when I say America, America, I mean in this case, of course, uh, the United States. Anyway, the third and final explanation for the growth of imperialist sentiment in America during the 1890s had to do with race and more broadly with, with culture. Now, by the 1890s, many white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans felt threatened by the influx of millions of non-Protestant and non-Anglo-Saxon uh, 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 immigrants into the country, Catholics and Jews. In the South, during the 1890s, white supremacist sentiment had reached a feverish pitch with segregationist barriers slamming down all over the region, uh, disenfranchisement and legal segregation. Now, one result of all of this among American Protestants was a desire to spread white Anglo-Saxon values overseas to non-white peoples to bring this supposedly uh, superior culture to the natives of developing areas that supposedly needed our help. Now, if any of you have ever heard or heard of the British author Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, The White Man's Burden, you might uh, understand this sentiment coming from Americans. Has anybody heard of Rudyard Kipling? We'll start with that. A couple of you have heard of Rudyard Kipling. And have any of you ha heard of Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden? 
Hey, a couple of you have. Uh, 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 basically, what does is, what is the white man's burden say? What is the poem? What is the point of the poem? It's like white man's responsibility to civilize the uncivilized, right. and, uh, barbaric, ethnic. Right, right. Pick up the white man's burden. That's what, uh, that's what the poem says. Uh, now, uh, uh, Kipling is talking to his fellow Brits, uh, but Americans could view it in those terms uh, as well. And to uh, many imperialists in the United States, uh, America had a sort of white man's burden to bring white Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, Christian culture, American culture, to lesser, meaning non-white, peoples around the world. They deserve to be presided over by Americans, to be trained by Americans, and ultimately to be helped and uplifted by Americans. And it was this attitude, as is the case so often, a combination of self-interest and selfless altruism, albeit misplaced altruism, that drove so many Americans to dreams of world influence and world conquest disguised, again, as was so often the case in the rhetoric of racial and cultural uplift. We're only trying to help you. So, by the late 1890s, for these basic reasons, Americans were ready to join the ranks of the imperialists in America's unique style of imperialism, as I've described it, but imperialism nonetheless. And the neighboring island of Cuba... Uh, just a few miles south of the uh, American mainland, just, just a little south of Key West, Florida, seemed to provide the best opportunity for this. Now, by 1898, Cuba was fighting a brutal war of independence against Spain. Spain was a dying colonial power, a weak imperialist nation, uh, maybe strong in the 1500s, but certainly not strong uh, uh, in the late 1800s, and ripe for pushing around. Spanish brutalities against heroic Cubans during the Cuban War of Independence were played up by the mass market yellow tabloid journalists uh, uh, of the day in the United States, specifically uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal uh, and uh, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, which were sort of trashy tabloids. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's ironic, I've always felt, that Pulitzer has his name on the Pulitzer Prize and on as the best in journalism, because certainly Pulitzer's papers, especially the New York World, world uh, catered probably to the worst in journalism. These yellow journalists, and that's what they were called, yellow journalists, vied for headlines, you know, like the tabloid newspapers today or even the tabloid television uh, of, of, of today. Uh, if Nancy Grace existed uh, today, she'd probably be working for William Randolph Hearst. Now, these yellow journalists, Hearst and Pulitzer, uh, demanded uh, American intervention in Cuba during this war of independence, not for conquest, mind you, but to allow self-determination for the heroic Cubans. And in May 1898, the United States sent the battleship Maine, the U.S. Maine, uh, to Cuba to uh, watch over American business interests in that country, because we did have business interests there. Nope. As always, American foreign policy is, again, a mix of altruism, the heroic Cubans, and self-interest. Let's protect our interests. In February 1898, the Maine mysteriously blew up in Havana Harbor, killing 260 American sailors. Now, most Americans were outraged and blamed Spanish sabotage, although we now know that uh, uh, this accident, which of course sparked the famous slogan, Remember the Maine, was just that, an accident caused by a faulty boiler. 
much, uh, much less heroic uh, uh, and much more mundane. This would be like uh, finding out that George Washington crossed the Delaware River in 1776 standing up uh, because all the seats on the boat were taken. So it loses a little of its luster to know that it was probably just the boiler and not the Spanish that blew up the Maine. But in any case, from that moment on, war with Spain was inevitable. War fever then carried the cautious American president, William McKinley, who was president from 1897 to 1901, sort of carried him along. And war was declared in April 1898. Once again, a case of a president coming into office with one agenda and uh, uh, maybe a domestic agenda. Uh, 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 he, uh, McKinley had just beaten William Jennings Bryan, the populist uh, Democrat, uh, in a campaign of 1896 that was dominated by the economy and dominated by class, uh, class questions, working class questions, basically, labor questions. Uh, McKinley gets into office. He thinks he's going to have a... Uh, you know, a four years of domestic, uh, uh, not necessarily domestic reform, but it's going to be domestically oriented, and he ends up as a war president. You know, you can never tell. Uh, so, in any case, war is declared in April 1898. Now, at the same time it declares war, the United States Congress passed what was known as the Teller Amendment, not Penn and Teller, Teller, T-E-L-L-E-R, uh, uh, in which it promised not to use this war to acquire territory in Cuba. And America lived up to the Teller Amendment, although one might say it lived up to it in the same sense that Bill Clinton meant, might say his answers to the grand jury investigating him during his impeachment crisis were uh, technically true but evasive. Because the United States never actually took over the government of Cuba, but it did institute indirect domination and direct economic domination. Yet another example of the rather schizoid nature of American imperialism, claiming to be altruistic on the one hand, uh, uh, to be concerned only with the independence and self-determination of other nations on the one hand, and throwing their weight around, so to speak, on the other hand, and jealously protecting their interests. Now, this tension between the good American and the ugly American would characterize our foreign policy throughout the 20th century. Now, as to the Spanish-American uh, 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 Spanish War, Spanish Civil War is in the 1930s, as to the Spanish-American War, I use that term loosely because if it was a fight, it would have been a first-round knockout for the United States. The Spanish-American War only lasted for four months and left only 500 Americans dead as, you know, as war casualties. Many more Americans were killed during this war by tropical diseases like yellow fever and dysentery uh, and malaria, many more than by Spanish bullets. The yellow journalist Pulitzer and uh, Hearst, the world and the journal, got, uh, got a lot of good copy. Uh, a good example was Theodore Roosevelt himself and his battalion, the Rough Riders, who charged up San Juan Hill in Cuba uh, uh, in a heroic charge, uh, uh, helped incidentally by black troops whose uh, contributions Roosevelt then diminished, uh, minimized uh, uh, deliberately. Uh, so it was a lot of good copy, a lot of good tabloid stories. And not only did the United States throw the Spanish out of Cuba, but they also threw them out of Puerto Rico and the Philippines as well. Under the Treaty of Paris signed with Spain in 1899, Cuba was granted its independence. But it was under total United States control. Notice, again, this, this indirect form of American imperialism. 
Under what was known as the Platt Amendment, P-L-A-T-T, which was signed in 1901 or passed in 1901, Cuba could not make independent treaties with foreign powers, meaning it could not conduct its own foreign policy, which is sort of the, the nature of a sovereign nation. Uh, the United States was allowed to intervene in internal Cuban political and economic affairs when it thought, thought it was appropriate. And the United States got bases in Cuba, including, including one that it even holds, even in the face of Fidel Castro and you know, almost 50 years of his rule, one that it still holds today. Which one is that? Guantanamo, where uh, the Al-Qaeda prisoners are. Now, as for Puerto Rico, the United States outright annexed Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, it didn't become a state. It became what was known as a commonwealth uh, with no taxation. Its residents are American citizens, uh, uh, but also no statehood uh, and no independence uh, either to this day. But it was the Philippines, the third acquisition of the Spanish-American War, that seemed to cause the most controversy. What would the United States do with the Philippines? It was very far away, obviously. It was outside the normally accepted United States sphere of influence. I mean, at least Cuba and Puerto Rico were in the Western Hemisphere. President McKinley expressed the prevailing imperialist attitudes towards the Philippines, along with many of its ethnocentric and even racist assumptions, in a famous or infamous statement that he made to a group of Methodist clergymen uh, in 1898. They had visited the White House after the, uh, the Spanish-American War was over, uh, and they asked the president uh, what he planned to do with the Philippines. And McKinley responds that he had prayed long and hard over the question of what to do with the Philippines. Uh, he stayed up late many nights thinking about it, and after much prayer he decided that, well, they couldn't give them back to Spain, that would betray them, couldn't do any, nothing at all because the European powers of the, or, or the Japanese would just jump in. And, in McKinley's opinion, the Filipinos were unfortunately unfit to govern themselves, so there would be chaos if that happened. And so McKinley decided, and I'm reading a quote here, there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. And thus McKinley decided America had to keep the Philippines. It was our duty to do so. And we did keep the Philippines. But we didn't reckon on the fierce opposition of the Filipino people themselves who, led by the guerrilla general Emilio Aguinaldo, that's uh, A-G-U-I-N-A-L-D-O, Aguinaldo, they waged a brutal four-year war of independence, this time to America's embarrassment against the United States, not Spain. This was one of the relatively rare occasions during this period uh, in which the United States actually waged open military operations in service of its imperialist goals. Now, Maybe this word open is not so much, not all that uh, appropriate because the Filipino War of Independence until recently got very little play in our American history books. And I'll admit that I had never even heard of this war until, uh, until I was out of college, not even in college. And perhaps there was good reason for this relative silence about the Filipino War of Independence because, to put it mildly, this was not America's finest hour. 
It was a brutal war, a very violent war, in which the United States engaged in some of the same human rights atrocities that it had condemned Spain for, the power that it replaced. A war in which America used racial stereotypes against the Filipinos, anticipating to some degree our stereotypes uh, 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 against the Vietnamese, uh, or of the Vietnamese as gooks during the, uh, uh, during the Vietnam War. A war in which, this is the Filipino War, uh, in which America committed 120,000 soldiers and suffered over 4,000 dead, which is uh, more than we've suffered thus far in, in, in Iraq. And certainly many more than had died during the Spanish-American uh, War itself. And inflicted casualties estimated as high as 200,000 on the Filipinos amid orders to exterminate them uh, and uh, also to incarcerate captured Filipinos in, in what basically were concentration camps. But finally, by 1904, the Filipino guerrillas had been defeated, and the United States went on to prepare the Philippines for self-government, all the while conducting a very profitable trade with them, uh, until giving the, giving the country its nominal independence in 1946. And it was America's relationship with the Philippines, I think above all, that galvanized the substantial anti-imperialist sentiment in the United States at this time. Now, what did the anti-imperialists want? Well, like the imperialists, the anti-imperialists uh, uh, came to their anti-imperialism uh, through a policy of very, very mixed motives. Many anti-imperialists, like William Jennings Bryan, who was the Democratic uh, uh, candidate for the presidency who opposed McKinley unsuccessfully uh, in both 1896 uh, and 1900, uh, people like Bryan worried that America was becoming no different than the avaricious Europeans as it grabbed for its share of the world's colonial spoils. Uh, no matter how Americans tried to distinguish themselves from countries like Great Britain and Germany and France, they were acting just like them. These anti-imperialists, like uh, William Jennings Bryan, took seriously the stated American aim of self-determination for all peoples a principle, of course, which is old as the Declaration of Independence. And the anti-imperialists asked that the United States live up to its principles in places like Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Eventually, these anti-imperialists warned, American tyranny abroad would come back to haunt it at home, since domestic democratic institutions would eventually be infected by the virus of anti-democratic behavior in colonized nations. And the anti-imperialists cited the example of the Roman Empire, which became more and more dictatorial as it acquired more and more foreign territory. They used this as a cautionary illustration. But this idealistic sentiment of the anti-imperialists was intertwined with practical, bottom-line, and even racist arguments. Anti-imperialist labor leaders, like the AFL's Samuel Gompers, we talked about him a couple of lectures ago, uh, opposed imperialism in general and annexation of the Philippines in particular because he feared that the poor uh, residents of colonized nations, especially the Philippines, would flood the United States labor market and put American workers who already suffered from an overabundant labor supply, remember I talked about that, out of jobs. And 
many Americans not only didn't want foreign workers in the United States, they didn't want non-whites of any kind in the United States. And thus, they opposed imperialism, especially the acquisition of the Philippines, on racial grounds. Now, this, of course, is a time of intense racial prejudice at home, meaning in America, especially in the South, where disenfranchisement and segregation of blacks was, by 1900, in full swing. And the situation wasn't much better, than, uh, better in the North, with its de facto segregated ghettos and job discrimination, and a number of race riots, including an infamous one in Abraham Lincoln's hometown of Springfield, Illinois, in 1908. In this racial atmosphere, or racist atmosphere, it is not surprising that many Americans wondered out loud why the United States would want to control nations with hundreds and thousands of non-whites. Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, even Asia, uh, Asians from the South Pacific island of Guam, G-U-A-M, which uh, the United States also won from Spain in 1898 uh, uh, as, as a result of the Spanish-American War. And so, once again, like the pro-imperialists, the anti-imperialists in the United States combined altruism and self-interest with a healthy dose of racism thrown in for good measure. In the end, however, the anti-imperialists lost, and American imperialism proceeded uh, uh, in the early 20th century uh, and beyond. The attractions to the average American of possessing world power status were just too tempting to pass up, as were the lures of expanded trade and market opportunities that overseas expansion presented. One rule of American history, not the only one, but a major one, is money talks. And through the presidencies of Theodore Roosevelt from 1901 to 1909, uh, who succeeded the assassinated uh, uh, William McKinley uh, in 1901, uh, also William Howard Taft from 1909 to 1913, and Woodrow Wilson from 1913 to 1921, imperialism American style proceeded, emphasizing economics first, with military backing as needed uh, in the Caribbean, in Central America, and in Asia. In China, a huge potential market for the United States, obviously still is a huge potential and actual market for the U.S., uh, and a country which was conveniently uh, very weak politically in the early 1900s, Theodore Roosevelt's Secretary of State, uh, John Hay, who... 40 years earlier, had been uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, personal secretary, uh, John Hay launched what became known as the open door policy in China, whereby, whereby the United States prevailed upon the European powers, which also obviously coveted China, to forego territorial conquests in exchange for an open economic atmosphere in which all nations, including the U.S., could engage in free trade. Now, through the open-door policy, the United States was able to access the China market without having to confront the European powers militarily, which was a deft maneuver that uh, epitomized the United States' philosophy of, of imperialism during these early years. Uh, uh, Hay and Roosevelt understood uh, that the United States, while powerful, econo uh, powerful militarily, uh, was not really prepared to take on England, France, Germany uh, in any sort of war. And so they 
they, they, they came up with this open door policy basically saying, well, let's just have free trade. Let's not fight each other. Let's just have free trade. And, you know, wh- whoever can get whatever, you know, we, we, whoever can get whatever they get is entitled to it. And avoiding a military conflict that way. Uh, it was actually quite smart diplomacy for the United States. Now, Theodore Roosevelt's greatest foreign policy triumph which is the building of the Panama Canal, was another example of this indirect imperialism, this American-style imperialism. Now, the narrow country of Panama was a perfect uh, venue for a canal that would cut the sailing time between New York and San Francisco by two-thirds. Remember, before the Panama Canal, you had to go around South America. But there was one small problem with the Panama Canal. Panama was a province of neighboring Colombia, directly to the south. But this small detail did not trouble Theodore Roosevelt. He simply encouraged Panama to revolt successfully against Colombia and declare its independence. And then, in an ending worthy of a comic opera or perhaps a Marx Brothers movie, Roosevelt signed an agreement with a delegate of the new Panamanian government. Not with an actual Panamanian, but with a Wall Street lawyer in New York who claimed to represent Panama, uh, through which the United States uh, uh, acquired a 10-mile stretch of Panamanian territory, the Canal Zone, uh, uh, along which it would construct the Panama Canal. And the Panama Canal, at the time it was completed in 1914, uh, uh, was the greatest engineering achievement in world history. We've obviously now given the Panama Canal back uh, to Panama. So the the Panama Canal, then, was another example of imperialism American style, in which territorial conquest was secondary to economic influence. Well, Theodore Roosevelt did, of course, acquire the actual uh, canal zone itself for the United States, He didn't see the need to run the entire country of Panama as an outright American colony. Through American business interests, he had the next best thing. And even when Roosevelt sent troops into the Dominican Republic, uh, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, and Haiti, uh, under the terms of the so-called Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which claimed the Amer- America's right to intervene in the internal affairs of Western Hemisphere countries to prevent disorder and keep Europeans out. The Monroe Doctrine just said, Europeans keep out. The Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine says, Europeans keep out and we will intervene directly uh, ourselves. Uh, uh, but even when Roosevelt sent troops into these countries uh, under the Roosevelt Corollary, uh, he did not take over these countries as colonies, but uh, held to the argument, and really more the myth, that these nations were still self-determining politically, and that the United States was, again, not acting like the Europeans. Now, the so-called Dollar Diplomacy administration of William Howard Taft and the following administration of Woodrow Wilson uh, continued what we could call this fiction, uh, talking the altruistic talk while walking the self-interested walk. Although, in fairness, the United States is obviously not the only nation in the world to act in a self-interested capacity or way in foreign policy. And one might question which is worse, Imperialism, American style, with its sanctimony laced with hypocrisy, 
or the brand of imperialism practiced by the European powers and Japan with its cynical, outright, unapologetic colonial exploitation. And it might have been Woodrow Wilson who understood best that while the balancing act between altruism and self-interest or selfishness uh, in American-style imperialism was a difficult one, and sometimes an impossible one, it still was worth attempting and understood that this attempt may have distinguished America from Great Britain and Germany and France and all the other uh, more cynical other nations. Now, Woodrow Wilson's attempts to promote self-determination consistent with United States interests in neighboring Mexico between 1914 and 1917 failed. Uh, He withdrew his support of a democratic leader there uh, whose economic policies began to threaten American business interests. But when Woodrow Wilson's attention shifted to Europe itself, where beginning in 1914, World War I was raging... Wilson began to sense that the possibility existed that America could both support its ideals, promoting democracy and freedom and self-determination for colonized and uh, uh, subjugated peoples, not only in Europe, but in, in Asia and the Middle East and Africa as well, while at the same time promoting American self-interests, trade opportunities, market expansion, business investment, worldwide capitalism. And, as Woodrow Wilson observed a world at war, he began to believe that American altruism and American pragmatism might actually coincide, and that what was good for America might also be good for the world. And that the tension that had plagued American imperialism, American style, and, for that matter, American foreign policy in general, might be resolved. Next time, when we talk about America and World War I, we will see, among other things, how Woodrow Wilson tried to do for the world what he could not do in Mexico, and that is make it both safe for democracy and safe for American power, leadership, and prosperity. And that's next time.